Hey, everybody. I'm excited to be on this podcast. It's a PK podcast, and I feel like I might have the coolest seat in the building. I have the hot ticket, the ticket that few people get. And I'm sitting here, and I have a co-host chair who's joining me in the virtual kitchen all the way from Virginia is Robert Fiveash. Robert, what's going on? Jay, what's up, man? Looking out the window at some storm clouds, but I think we're going to have a calm day on this podcast. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm glad we connected. And as some of you know, most of you know, and if you don't, Robert is the president and co-owner at Brand Fuel Inc. He is also the president of Promo Kitchen. And that reminds me, Robert, is it fair to say your days are numbered as the PK Prez? They are, but the anticipation of our guest is killing me. Can we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. What? Shame on me. Where are my manners? Good <laughs> God. I need all the help I can get. People don't tune in for us. They tune in for our guests. And we have one of the Perfect. best. It's amazing. I can hear that laugh right now. And it just makes my heart sing. We have the one, the only Michelle Bell. And Michelle has recently, as was reported by Tim Andrews, Mr. Andrews, Timothy, however you want to call him. He's just a good guy. He let me know personally via Facebook that she is now vice president of editorial and events at ASI. Michelle, what's up? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Did I ever uh, sell that? I was kind of jacked up, wasn't I? <laughs> it was very, very nice. And thank you for acknowledging the promotion. Of course, I am not on Facebook, but Tim showed me what he put in. It was very sweet and very lovely and much I love appreciated. I photo of you too, by the way. It's so good. Oh, it was from the counselor banquet one year, for sure, in Chicago. Yep. It was super yep. fun. Isn't that we great? Show. Robert, are we two of the luckiest guys ever? We are two <laughs> of the luckiest guys ever. And I just want to make sure that we discuss your lack of Facebooking before we go today, because I... Yeah. I am an avid non-Facebooker as well and have been. The only reason I'm on Facebook is because my business partner, Danny, begged me to get on it. But I, I don't yes. think... Well, he's like a Kardashian, for Christ's sake. So, of course, he of did. Course, of course. <laughs> so there, there's enough of him to go around for all times. But, but I'm really curious. We'll get into this later. But I love that you're that way. And I'm curious whether it's kept you from certain opportunities in the industry or out of the loop in certain things or what, or if it's just blissful, which is kind of where it is for me. It is completely blissful. And as far as it keeping me out of the loop, you know, this industry in so many ways, much like high school, you know, the minute anything happens, who the hell needs to be on Facebook? I had 20 people call me as I'm sure you guys do. So it doesn't really matter anyway. And I got to tell you, Robert, I think in retrospect, you and I, with all the things that have come out about Facebook and Mr. Zuckerberg's less than upstanding, you know, privacy dealings. I feel like the smart one here. I think everybody else got the fuzzy end of the lollipop on that deal. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. I agree. That's awesome. No, I do think you're right. I think there's much more skepticism today than there was a few years ago. And certainly with Facebook, it seems that folks are certainly the younger folks are looking at other platforms other than Facebook. And even adults like us, Jay, would you say that even from PK's point of view, Facebook has less of an impact than maybe some Instagram or, or Twitter these days? Yeah, I think the golden age of Facebook is in our rear view mirror. And it doesn't mean that it's not still relevant. It, it clearly is. But you guys have made some great points here. And I think everybody kind of finds their lane, finds their jam and their tribe. And it may be Facebook for some, and that's totally cool. But it seems like as new platforms develop and as new opportunities and the change and what a 13-year-old thinks is cool, it's, let me tell you, it's definitely not Facebook. 
Isn't that funny, though, the kind of juxtaposition when you look at now as opposed to 10 to 15 years ago? I mean, you know, Nate Kuzma, who I work with, I think you guys both know him, certainly Jay, you do, who does our research and studies here. You know, he breaks it down demographically. And younger people, certainly Gen Z, they kind of snicker and there's an eye roll when it comes to Facebook. You know what I mean? They have a quotational eye roll, you know, oh God, okay, boomer. You know, it's so foreign to them, you know, whereas, you know, they're on completely different platforms now. Totally. It is crazy. Well, we got together a couple of, this was after incessant begging and I did everything I could to secure (laughs) this interview with Michelle. And so our premise, as you guys both know, we were trying to figure out something cool and something that would resonate. So we came up with step inside the time machine. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's, I don't know if that's good or not, but it relates to this Facebook thing. It's like, as the time machine moves forward, you know, what was impressive and amazing and what garnered our attention 10 years ago, it's like not even a footnote in reality today. Well, first, I'd like to thank you guys for your persistence. And it's not that I was being intentionally coy. It's just that being somebody who went to school for journalism, Rule number one in journalism school is that the journalist or the reporter is never the subject of the story. So that was just always kind of ingrained in me. That's why you guys are only the second podcast I've ever done where I'm not the one conducting the podcast. So it wasn't that I don't love and have respect for you too. It's just a little bit of a, not uncomfortable, but it's not my wheelhouse. You know what I mean? But here I am. (laughs) From my perspective, you're so much more than that. Not only are you a personality in the industry, whatever that means. You're one of the good guys, one of the good gals. And I think any Thank you. we can shed some light on the good work that you do. And that's why I wanted to do it. So thank you for doing it. Yeah, of course. I do want to ask you one thing it has a yeah. lot to do with social media. Whatever happened to the Bellwether blog? You know, to be frank, it just got too much for me to keep up with. So yeah. I loved it because I would go to events and, you know, take photos, but it wasn't just taking photos. It was writing captions for all of the photos. And, you know, once I started taking photos at events, I loved it. And especially with our whole group of friends, I mean, they're all just so much fun. But then, you know, I have to come back to the office and then write, you know, these fun captions. And with putting out the magazines and the e-newsletters and all of the good stuff that we do here, it just got away from me. It was fun. It was fun to go to the Power Summit and come back and maybe see your picture in there. But that took a lot of time, I'm sure. Well, it did, but I have to think that there's a healthy cadre of people in the industry who are more than a little happy that it's gone because I remember (laughs) Chuck Fandos telling me that every time one of his kids Googled his name, there was a photo of him, you know, half shot in the ass, like he'd, you know, been with the Stones on the 72 tour. Uh, So he, of course, is thrilled that it's gone, as are, I'm sure, many others. Uh, That's so funny. I'm that's hilarious. By the way, I love the fact that we had a Chuck Fandos reference in our second podcast, since he was the one who broke the ice and was instrumental in helping you break the mold that helped you change and evolve. And you know what? It's been so great, Michelle. I mean, listen, first of all, let's frame this like this. We're not really interviewing you. This is a discussion. This is three people that have been in this industry forever. We're not really going to, but we like to banter and let's push the limits. Let's talk about some of the critical things and in maybe 2019 or 2018, we can move this time machine back. We can move it forward. So yep. that was really the point of getting you to say yes was because of your perspective. Sure. Obviously, you're well-versed in all these topics and obviously 
you are so well-spoken. So for us, it's a true treat. I thank you again. I thank Chuck a little bit, but not so much. Because, you know. <laughs> well, thank you guys. So let's jump in. By the way, we also yeah. want to make our listeners aware that there's a high probability that we will be referencing from time to time. There was a web exclusive on the asicentral.com website, and it talked about 20 predictions for promo in 2020. And it was really timely yeah. because we were trying to make our own list and your amazing, talented coworker, colleague, Chris Ruvo, was able to, I think, did a phenomenal job, by the way, because it came across- He really did. It wasn't just like it was his opinion, right? It was more like, you guys poured some data on this, didn't you? Yeah, he did. It's so comprehensive, and it's a voluminous amount of information that really kind of encapsulates both the year prior that's ending and a look forward. And yeah, he did. He just did a super job with it, for sure. How long have y'all had the Counselor Confidence Index? When we started our business, we thought about creating something that we were going to call a fuel gauge, which would kind mm -hmm. of the sentiment of distributors and suppliers and customers and sort of put that out there to the industry, perhaps. And we never did it. But I'm curious how you all built this Consumer Confidence Index. What goes into it? Because it's very much needed. You know, I think we're in this world today where everything's very polarized and this idea that there's several truths out there, which just sort of blows my mind when you hear people talk about that. But something like this Counselor Confidence Index really does try to give you the straight skinning. What's the story behind it? Yeah. So it started a few years ago. I'm going to say seven. It really is synonymous with Nate. He's really kind of the owner of this. And he does it by culling information from people in the industry. So it's done through a lot of surveying and a lot of data analysis. As far as what people are saying, they're seeing happen in the industry as far as their sales. Are they flat? Are sales going up? It's also very predictive. So I would say what's most fascinating to me, Robert, is there's a real shift sometimes between, you know, you could say the industry is having a good year. Well, okay. But if you break down by size of company, that's where you see some real color coming into the picture. So while the top 40 companies may be having a fantastic year, you know, the mid-sized companies maybe are a little bit more under duress. And you can really look at that by slicing and dicing Nate's data. That's why I call it the dark lord of the data arts. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> is, is that generally what you all are finding, Michelle? I mean, it's happy at the top and underneath some storm clouds. It's kind of interesting. And, you know, obviously we chose to base this on the consumer confidence index, right? That's, you know, the general economic mm -hmm. indicator in the U.S. But what I think is fascinating is, yes, the top 40s, they're having a great year, right? It's the smaller guys that do, let's just say, under a million. They're having a strong year too. It's that middle group that yeah. seems challenged. And whether it's because that smaller guys, you know, they have their local community clients and they have a lot of repeat business there. The big guys, of course, you know, they have such a bandwidth and so many resources and they're dealing with Fortune 500 companies. It's that mid-sized group that it seems to me is struggling a little bit because they're feeling pressure. Now, whether the pressure is coming from people buying more online, which I have to think that that's a big part of it, right? Yeah. And that the menu of what they're able to offer clients isn't where it is with the top 40 guys, you know? And yeah. I think that there's a disparity there and they're starting to feel that. Now, that's not to say that they don't have their own benefits that they can certainly offer clients, but I think that that's the group that's really going to be feeling it as the marketplace changes. And by changes, I mean, you know, look, people are buying promotional products on Amazon now, you know, 
top 40s can compete with that a little bit better than those mid-sized guys. I think the smaller guys don't even wade into that. You know, that's not even their wheelhouse to get into. It's really fascinating. So we handle a lot of RFPs, as I'm sure a lot of distributors our size do. And, And for every person who says, I'm tired of the sort of big box distributor that does everything from branded merchandise to office supplies, there's another RFP that would love to have print and office supplies and branded merchandise all in one. Sure. I'm not seeing a trend towards one or other of those extremes. You know, different clients want different things, but yeah, my guess is that you're spot on that the top folks and the folks that cater to the smaller market are probably doing a bang up job in this market. And those in the middle are trying to figure out who they are. It's fascinating to me. This industry overall, I think is a very kind of bullish industry. So for next year, Nate's predictions based again on industry surveying show that the industry, this is based on distributors, by the way, will be up four to five percent. Now, that is very optimistic considering the uncertainty that's going to happen in 2020 with elections, with tariffs, with you know, all of that stuff. But that's an interesting number for me that this industry, I think, because it's weathered so much and has come out on the other side, still growing, you know, they have yeah. a remarkable amount of confidence and I think rightly so in themselves. Optimism. We're an optimistic group, I think. I think we are, right? Yeah, I think we are. You know, it's interesting, Michelle, you brought up a little bit of the tariff situation. That's yeah. fluid, constantly moving. There's been a lot of articles. I mean, Robert's done a fantastic job. He did a great article and a great podcast for us earlier in the year. Maybe you two could speak to that. Maybe we could transition to that topic a little bit. How do you think that's going to crash the party or is it? Mm-hmm. Jay, you're very kind. I don't have a ton to say on the tariffs, although I will say that from my perspective, it was a big story because we all need big stories. But in terms of impacting our industry, I'm not sure it had the impact that we thought it would. I mean, from the perspective of uncertainty and certainly suppliers potentially not making investments because of the uncertainty, but on the distributor side, I mean, honestly, I don't think it had all that big of an impact. I think in most cases, we were able to pass the price increases on to clients and the client Mm -hmm. understood. They knew that it didn't come from us. Whatever your political leanings, it happened. And honestly, where it was difficult for us, I think in big online store, you know, big web sort of situations where you've got hundreds and hundreds of products in a program it's actually really hard to go in and change all of that pricing from, you know, a hundred different suppliers and, you know, 5,000 different items if you have a really big store. So I think there are probably some distributors that never even struggle to make yeah. the changes in pricing. So I think mm-hmm. that, that could have been somewhat difficult. I will say, I think the coolest thing that if there's anything cool about the tariffs, <laughs> was that there was this discussion of what part of the product actually got the tariff increase. So I think there were probably a lot of people who didn't quite understand that, you know, it really was just on the goods that came in. And so the decoration, if it happened in the U.S., part of the tariffs, Mm -hmm. the packaging, that wasn't part of the tariffs. I mean, all sorts of sort of at the end of the process things that happened to this item that was imported that didn't get tacked on, which was kind of interesting international finance. The international mystery. Well, before I ask Michelle the same thing, Robert, I'm curious, really curious about, so if we go backwards in our time machine, when this first was on the scene, is it fair to say that you were a little bit panicked, maybe because you weren't sure how it was going to play out? 
I don't think so. Okay. And I don't want to like rewrite history. So if you have a tape of me you know, <laughs> in a voice, I know, do not please, rest assured. Please, please play that. But from my perspective, I was concerned and am concerned about any time that there's sort of unnecessary uncertainty sort of thrown out willy-nilly in some ways without closure and without a good description of you know the philosophy behind it. Yeah. You are going to create a situation where people are not going to invest. Mm-hmm. And that was probably much more on the supplier side than on the distributor side. But I honestly, Jay, the whole time I figured that most clients would be understanding that, hey, this isn't something that we started. It's not something we're going to finish. We're as in the dark about it as you are, but at least we can try to educate you and tell you where it might hurt or where it might not. But I think the vast majority of the clients understood that this wasn't something that we started or would profit right. and it would just be a pass through. And I think the vast majority actually, they got it. And yeah. you know, the fear is that all of a sudden, compared to other advertising medium, that all of a sudden this was priced out of the market. And I don't think that happened. No, I don't think mm. so either. I'm curious, really curious to get Michelle's take because I know a lot of editorial has been dedicated to this topic. There have been a lot of important players in our industry that have weighed in who have been directly impacted. I'm not directly impacted. So it's been interesting mm-hmm. to see it from my perspective, how sure. it did seem like there was this really big panic. And of course, anytime there's uncertainty, that's going to create this, not panic is probably not the right word, but it seems like things, even though aren't resolved, it's like we're playing with it as though it's the new normal. But I'd love to hear it from your side of the street. I think it's unsettling for the industry, frankly. I mean, I think that the uncertainty that you're speaking of, I think what that breeds then is people are unsettled and certainly suppliers. You know, Chris Ruvo, again, has done a fantastic job covering this topic in its totality. I always kind of always, ever since you know I've been in the industry, I've always felt for suppliers. You know, they bear the brunt of everything, of rebates, of tariffs, of product safety. You know, it's all on their shoulders. And let me just tell you guys something that will come as a surprise to exactly no one in the industry. We have a codependency problem with China. 90% of our items are imported from China. Okay. So if the tariff issue has done nothing else, I would hope that suppliers have begun to source from other countries like India, parts of Africa, Vietnam, Bangladesh, because to put all of our eggs in one basket is not a smart strategy. It would be like me saying to one of you guys, you're getting 90% of your sales from one client. Of course not. You know, that's an idiotic strategy. Well, here we are with our products, again, 90% of which are coming from China. So say what you will about President Trump, and God knows I have more tips than most people, but he was right to try to take China to heal. You know, the country's been out of control with, you know, rampant patent and copyright infringements, its currency manipulation. All of this affects not only the U.S. economy, but this industry in ways that maybe aren't so overt, but for sure hit suppliers when it comes to their importing costs and their product safety costs and you know the cost of doing business and when they're dealing with factories. I mean, there's just a myriad and a multi-layered situation that happens in China because they can't keep their currency in check and their tariffs. And this situation with President Trump and President Xi Jinping, I mean, you know, is it going to be ongoing? I think a little bit. I think that as we head into 2020 and the elections, I think that that'll prompt a little bit more stability because 
Mm-hmm. The market will clamor for that. Right. But my hope is more than anything else for this industry specifically, that suppliers start looking at other areas from which to import. And I know that's not an easy thing. China is set up so well to be the world's workplace, as they call it, right? They call it the world's workshop. Not any other country is set up for that. But I would hope that others are starting to get up to speed, such as a Vietnam and Bangladesh. 100%. I think you're exactly right in terms of you know, a couple of the silver linings. The PK Podcast will return right after this short break. This podcast has been brought to you by our good friends at Sanmar. Sanmar believes in the power of promotional products. Since 1971, this family-owned apparel supplier has been dedicated to passionately serving customers through trusted brands like Port Authority, Nike Golf, OGO, District, District Made, and Sporttech. You can check them out online at sanmar.com. You can also tune in to Sanmar's new twice-monthly podcast, Sanmar Radio, for expert insights and inspiration to grow your business. We are so grateful for the support from our community partners. Now back to the program. Michelle, I'm just curious as somebody in your industry and this idea that it's hard to know who to trust on you know, this trust and verify type stuff that's out there. Who do you trust out there in the economic world to make sure that these agreements that seem to be on the horizon or have been announced are actually real and binding and are up to the expectations that were painted you know, six months ago? Do you mean media in general? Do you mean experts? On the tariffs. You mentioned that one of the silver linings was pushing back on China, and I totally agree. I think the challenge yeah. is what has been announced, what was promised, you know, and I don't know the answer to sure. that. I do think we need to hold folks accountable to expectations. I agree. And to answer your question, look, I kind of do a lot of things. I'm reading from multiple sources. So I'm reading Paul Krugman, and I'm reading Thomas Friedman, and I'm reading reports from economists. But I'm also talking to people in the industry who really know their stuff. And that would be the David Nicholson's and the Jonathan Isaacson's. Because these guys, I can read economist report every day of the week, but these guys have a very specific view of what's happening because they're actually in it. Bill Karwitz from Magnet is a perfect example. He's a trained economist for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? He's my go-to in a lot of ways. And politically, he's fairly down the middle. So he's a very objective person in that regard. But not only is he the owner of a supplier, but he's a trained economist. So he's one of my go-tos, I would say. And Jonathan as well and David are, you know, just phenomenal at parsing out the information as it relates to this industry. That's fantastic. I agree. Both those folks and others would be interesting to interview them six months from now and see. Yeah. And then, gosh, we're all rooting for it to have the positive outcome that we want. Another kind of silver lining that I was, was sort of chewing on is I was a stockbroker a million years ago, and, and it was one of those times where the market was cranking. This was in the early 1990s, and stock market was jamming, and CNBC and Money Magazine and all these retail-type channels and magazines were all the rage, and so you had all your clients calling and saying, you know, what about GE? I just heard this on CNBC or whatever, and it was really interesting, and I think One of the challenges of our industry is that there is a portion of it that many buyers, especially big corporate buyers, they really see what we do in many cases as a commodity. And that's a real Mm -hmm. challenge. And when I was a broker, 
it was often seen the same way. And these discount brokers were coming on strong, Charles Schwab and these other ones. And the full service brokerage firms like Merrill Lynch and, and some others were really taking a beating. And the only time that folks actually felt like they really wanted and needed a full service broker was when the market tanked. Mm-hmm. When there was white water out there, all of a sudden you were on the phone all day trying to reassure your clients. And I think one kind of silver lining in the tariffs is it allowed us to talk to the commodity-minded buyers about a more elevated topic about economics and try to guide them through it. I think when the clients understand that, hey, it's a little bit more complicated than just sending an email out to 10 distributors and see who's going to give you the cheapest price on that thing that you can sure. sell or commodity, it gave us a real opportunity to act smart and be smart and research and talk to them proactively about something that they had heard on the news and that they might be concerned about. So that was a bit of a silver lining. It allowed us to have a discussion with certain clients that may see some of us as commodity sellers. Yeah, that's a you great You guys point. are just going to have to give me a minute to scoop my jaw up off the ground that Robert was a stockbroker. <laughs> yeah. Well, he also, a lot of folks don't know this, but he also had a small part in that hit. What was that movie? Oh, yeah, Wall Street. So, you know, oh, I yeah, don't know. Yeah. It's a a small part, yeah. Small part, but if you look hard, you'll see him back there. He's on the phone. He's cranking out. He's getting the orders. (laughs) Hey, you know, you brought up something right there, Robert, that maybe we could segue a little and talk about about value and about purpose and about, you know, this isn't just a commodity and, and how we have to continually work to redefine ourselves and to educate ourselves so that we can educate our buyers. What do you think, Michelle? Is that something that's been a hot topic for 2019? And I am assuming that we would all three agree that that's never going to change. But what is your take from the editorial standpoint in terms of redefining? You hear people use the word swag, or you hear them say, oh, you can't mm-hmm. say that anymore. Or you hear them say, well, promotional products, or you hear them talk about, you know, well, what is that? And I just think it's really interesting that we paint ourselves into these corners and then we bitch about it. And then we sucked at the beginning because we didn't come up with anything better. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? You know, I've never minded the word swag, I got to tell you. And a few years back when I took over the editorial team, one of the first things I did was absolutely in a very kind of benevolent dictatorial way, strike the phrase advertising specialty. What in Thank the you. holy hell does that mean? You know, it's the most antiquated word ever, the most antiquated phrase. So I knew that as younger buyers were coming in, Who's going to know what that phrase means? I think swag is perfectly fine, actually. I've never seen anything wrong with that. And I think now with younger buyers, they really, and I'm heartened by this, by the way, that they really see the power of what it can do, especially as it relates to charities and causes. Wow, is it a powerful medium. And I think that young people really see that and they're big proponents of it. And I think that's a wonderful thing for this industry that should not be called advertising specialty. (laughs) What are the other phrases you have stricken officially from the annals of all editorial? (laughs) Are we allowed to say tchotchkes? You know, I don't like tchotchkes just because it's like a pejorative term, right? It kind of debases and demeans what the medium is. My issue with ad specialty is that it's just so antiquated. Look, if I had my druthers, I'd get rid of the name counselor for the magazine because that, I don't know if many people know in this day and age, counselor was a term from the 40s and 50s that meant distributor. That's why the magazine has that name. And 
if you don't know that, people nowadays think it's like, oh, you're consultative. No, that's not where the name came from. It came from this very old-fashioned term for distributor. So if, if the magazine wasn't so tied to the brand, I would jettison that too. But, you know, that's for another day. <laughs> well, and by the way, I think you know this because it's probably on your paycheck, but Advertising Specialty Institute, yeah, that's yeah. probably not going to change tomorrow either. Yeah. Well, the name of the company, no, for sure not. I mean, look, when I got recruited by a, a headhunter to come here, I didn't know what the hell it was. Like, it, was it a rehab? What's an institute? Where am I going? <laughs> It's a very strange, it's a very strange name. <laughs> we could use that institute that we have. <laughs> you know, Robert, what's your take on this? I mean, we're talking about adding value. We're talking about the purpose. We're talking about getting away from commodity. And yet yeah. we're always going to have ourselves framed by the words and words matter. And some have recently said swag and it stands for something we all get. Insert eye roll here, which means it's not special. You know, I don't know. I'm kind of with Michelle. I, a, I don't have a problem with the word swag, but is there a better way to define us and what we do? I'm probably like the old grandfather here, but I don't love the word swag. But I think I'm not only outvoted on this call, but everywhere else I talk about this. Our company used to have a, a tagline that we actually trademarked. It was, um, uh, uh, <laughs> It was really good. Yeah, it was, it was really memorable. Um, was, I am not was, editing this out, by yeah, the no, way. I just want no, you to know. I, there's no way you can edit that. So the tagline was, oh my God, hold on, I just had it. Uh, okay, our tagline was, our stuff's got your name written all over it. So kind of catchy, right? You know, kind of cool. Our stuff's got your name written all over it. You kind of have to think about it a little bit. And then once you do, you're like, huh. I get it. Gotcha. I got it. Yeah. But we retired that about 10 years ago because of the word stuff. Stuff. We thought the word stuff was demeaning to what we do. We don't sell or procure stuff. We are much more thoughtful than that. And we add much more value than that. And to me, swag has some of that pejorative DNA. I do like the swag, swagger, like the way... Yeah of like entertainment and hip hop and stuff like that have sort of grabbed onto the word swag, I think probably counters what I'm saying. So maybe I'm starting to move to the middle here, at least. When I'm pitching a 500 company and I want to show them that we are much more than, you know, tchotchkes and trinkets and trash and the commodity stuff, I'm not going to speak in the swag vernacular. My business partner, Danny, might but we're just different strokes for different folks. And so making the language of branded merchandise and all of the things that that means, I think it's probably clear what that means, but maybe at the end of the day, that's not the goal. If swag has a, an aura to it that allows people to imagine something different, that's kind of cool too. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it falls into the category of we all have preferences and we all have likes and dislikes. I'm just curious as to what we could do better to redefine and reinvent ourselves so that the value proposition is focused more on the outcomes, the results, and we get back to the purposes of marketing, the purposes of promotion, the purposes of advertising versus just to your point, Robert, stuff. So, you know, maybe we'll work on that for 2020. Maybe we'll task the creative labs at ASI and Michelle can crack that whip and get some folks moving. I've got an idea and I'm willing to get it totally shut down live on the air. Whoa. 
Okay. This is breaking right, news, so, everybody. So, <laughs> so I think we all agree that branded merchandise is not bad, right? Sure. Right. Yeah. Branded merch, branded um, merchandise. What about just be merch? And you sort of got that, you know, I'm R5, right? So that's my hip nickname. Is that your code name? Is that's that my code. That's my street name. Street, that gives you street cred when we say yes, yes. R5. So B merch is kind of like, it's got that sort of th- same thing, but it's got the B like as in behold, you know, become. It uh, reminds me of B merch. I haven't though. thought about it's it. Merch. Merch. <laughs> <laughs> merch, exactly. Uh, okay. Anyway. Yeah. You got shot down on that one. We can right. move on. Well, listen, it's creative minds like yours that I appreciate so much. We don't have the time to go into all of the side discussions that you and I have had, but you know what? That's why we're here. We are officially on the island of Misfit Toys. And you know, this time of year, we have the holidays upon us and we watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and we think back to the storylines of that silly, I don't know how old it is, 50 years, 40, 60. It's ancient, but I see it and I'm reminded of that tribe. First of all, let's be honest. I mean, those were some bully reindeers that were picking on Rudolph, right? I mean, come on, you know, and he had the solution all along. So anyway, don't get me started on that. But hold on, just remind me, what was his solution? Just like, let's all do this together, peeps. What what was his solution? I, I don't remember. The solution was his nose was glowing. So it would cut through the fog. Come on, Robert. Ah, okay, okay. Are you guys eating gummies and didn't tell me? Yeah, we might have got a start before you did. <laughs> oh, I, told, God. I told you it was bound to happen. So yeah. anyway, I just think it's interesting from a discussion standpoint about this. We tribalize things so often because we do, because it's human nature. And I think that we kind of see what we want to see and we discuss it from the perspectives that are our realities and swag mm. or promotional products or branded merchandise, you know, all of that. It's just interesting to me. And it's funny because words do matter, right? I think what you said, Jay, is completely right, though. I think it's a matter of personal preference. Add specialty to me sounds very antiquated, but I think each one of us draws our own gerrymandering district, for lack of a better <laughs> way to say it, around nice. our beliefs. And we carve out what we gravitate to and what we don't like. And I think that that's okay. Yep. I would agree with that. I think it's okay. I think we should transition. That's what I think. I think we should get in our time machine and we should maybe think about our little world of what's happening and what happened in 2019 that made an impression and maybe even what did we learn from it. I don't know that we're going to cover all of that, but I still think that on our list of potential bullet points was this concept of nothing ever changes. Here we are again, and people are still apparently people, when I say people, I mean this relationship between distributors and suppliers and buyers, by the way, you know, the supply chain of buyer and distributor. And we still have our little walls, our little silos of, Mm -hmm. you know, these tribes and there's unrealistic expectations. There's the buyer who wants it, you know, today because we live in an Amazon world. And there's the supplier who's like, hey, you have no idea how long it's taken me to get this inventory and to get all of this stuff and to get it certified and make sure it's safe. And and then there's us in the middle just kind of getting pulled both ways. When I say us, I'm not really in the middle anymore, but that was the role I played. So Robert, unrealistic, are these silos going to ever break? Are our tribes going to ever shift a little bit? Or is this the way it's going to be for a while? What do you think? Oh, gosh. 
Obviously, I have no idea. I think there will come a day when the industry will look very, very different than it does today. There's no reason to think that a supplier couldn't also be a great sales company as well. So that day will come. There will be consequences to that, that that particular supplier that decides to do that will have to take into account and will need to decide or their owners will need to decide whether that's a risk they're willing to take. But somebody will give it a try and others are already stealthily trying. So it will happen. I don't know when it will happen. And ultimately, if it is better for the end user, if the end user experience ultimately is a more professional experience and shines a light on this industry in a more positive way by having that type of consolidation, you know, let's bring it on. I mean, the ultimate goal, I think, when we're really honest, is what gives the most value to the end buyer. And from my perspective, that could be part of the solution or it may not. I have no idea, but certainly people will try it and I have no problem with that. And some probably are trying it, right? Michelle, what do you think? Wouldn't it be kind of more like a process of it's happening now and maybe we just don't know it? I think it's fascinating to me that for the distributors, not all of them, but the distributors who are, you know, concerned and like to harangue and, you know, they're on their pulpits about, you know, suppliers going direct. And the amount of distributors I see in Asia, mm, pots and kettles and blackness, my friends, pick a side, people. I don't think you can point a finger at suppliers and say, shame on you of going direct. Meanwhile, in droves now, I see distributors in Asia. I think that, you know, if it's good for one group, then the other should be allowed to do what they want to do. Well, Robert makes a great point that in the end, most likely the market will decide, right? So if there's value there, but if we fast forward to 2029, we jump inside our time machine. If you had to place a bet today on one or the other, you know, a traditional mindset of a distributor sales company and a traditional mindset of a supplier who's importing and decorating product, if we could only get one of them to move forward and win, who would you place your bet with? Would you bet on distributors or would you bet on suppliers? Robert, you know, I love you every day of the week, but my money's always on suppliers. Yeah. They are crafty. They are resilient. They are resourceful. And I often think today, I don't know what it would be like for a supplier to start a business in this industry. Because think of how different it is. Things that you have to pour money into that you wouldn't have had to 20 to 30 years ago. Product safety, technology. You know, look at the cyber attacks that this industry is dealing with. The amount of money that suppliers have to kind of carve out for those things that they wouldn't have had to, again, a few decades ago. I stand in awe of any supplier who comes into this industry and can make a go of it successfully. Truly, I do. Yeah, if I had to pick one or the other, I would pick that as well, Michelle, 10 years out. If I had to choose one, I think it'll still be a mix of both 10 years out. I think the biggest driver of this is really the private equity that's coming in that obviously understands aspects of our industry, but might not understand the history and the way that it has worked in the past and might come at it, maybe especially international folks that come in with international money and are looking at this thing going, you do what? And you sell (laughs) this and why? And I think that perspective of the money people is probably going to be the biggest driver of this. Well, it's interesting. And of course, none of us know this, but if we all did, we would be making different choices. But 
I've often thought that there will be a day when we're going to see that super merger. And I'm not just talking about two top 40 suppliers or two top 40 mm-hmm. distributors. I think in the next 10 years, you heard it here first on the PK podcast with Michelle Bell and with Robert Fiveash, that there is going to be a mega top 40 supplier merging and buying a mega top 40 distributor company. Those two are somehow going to get involved and get in bed and make it happen. And you know what I'm talking about when I say make it happen. (laughs) I completely agree, by the way. I think that that's about right. You know, it's fascinating to me too, when you look at the mergers and acquisitions going on in this industry, I mean, the sheer size of them. Jay, I have a question for you, actually. Does it give you pause or do you find it stunning? You know, when I look at like the top five companies, the sheer dominance of apparel in this industry is just something. It is. It makes me stop and wonder every day that we still call this the promotional product industry. When I've grown up as an apparel decorator and I don't see it as a product industry. Mm -hmm. And I think the second you define it, we don't want to rehash that words matter. But when you talk about a product, we should be talking more about service and value and solutions and outcomes. So yes, I am very connected to the decorating industry as it relates to apparel. And I think that the dominance that you speak of, Michelle, is only going to get bigger because I don't even think those numbers truly reflect. If you wanted to add in, let's say, decorated apparel for team wear, Mm-hmm. For every football team, is that a promotional product? I will tell you, not according to the way that we break out our top 40, but you're right. I mean, it very well could be. I'm selling to a school. It's got a name and a number on it. I'm buying these jerseys from someone in our supply chain. You know, so it's funny how we define things in terms of this is or isn't in our industry. And if you talk to a decorator, they're doing all kinds of things that aren't in our industry. You know, I'm not talking about their tax preparers. I'm saying there's these ancillary these odd dysfunctional cousins that don't really come to the table very often, but they're there. And so you're right. And as always, you point out these top five mega companies who would have thought they would have crossed a billion dollars in sales. Yeah. And now are there two or three of them that have? I would say at this stage of the game, look, if I'm predicting for 2020, certainly, you know, Sanmar, of course, Alpha, SNS. SNS is somebody, Chris Ruvo, again, just did a profile on SNS who I, quite frankly, knew nothing about. I mean, if you paid me money, I couldn't have told you who ran that company. I'm only half kidding when I say I thought it was Megan Erber, just because she's a friend of mine and, you know, she's, she's at SNS. Like, what do I know? I read Chris's profile. I edited it and it's a fantastic piece. But now I know who the management structure is. But they're a very interesting company. And do I think that they'll be doing a billion in 2020? Yeah, I do. I would guess some in the industry would have expected this thing that we're describing to have happened even earlier. 10 years ago, if this question would have been asked, most people would have said in 2019, it it would be happening, would have happened. (laughs) Why do you think it hasn't to the level that perhaps we're predicting for 2029? Oh, Robert, my dear friend, because this industry, among its many positive, lovely traits, moves at a glacial pace. (laughs) And people that we all know and love are so attached to the way things have been, underline, 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 all caps in bold, the way things have always been. I think that this industry kind of moves along in its own kind of plodding pace. And I think that that is changing and certainly needs to change quickly. So you really think that 
the CEOs of the top five distributors and top five suppliers put that much weight in the old way, the traditional way, and that's keeping them from making the business decisions that they want to make? No, not at that level, not the top five. And I'm not even talking about the top 40 specifically, but I'm talking about the industry again in its totality. I think that this industry moves at a much slower pace than other industries. When you get to the level of, you know, the top 40s, the top 20s, and those CEOs, no. I agree. So why do you think that that hasn't happened yet with the big folks? You know, it's a good question. I don't know if they're afraid. You know, you intimated, Robert, you said, you know, if people make certain decisions, they have to be prepared. And this is me paraphrasing for the blowback. You know, a lot of people in this industry are very cognizant and are driven by what people are going to think in this industry. Because for as large as it is, you know, careening towards $25 billion, right? It's still a very small, insular industry. So I think that while the CEOs who come from outside of this industry would like to make the swing for the fences, moonshot moves, I think that their people may hold them back a little bit. The people who've been in this industry for a long time and are hesitant because, you know, oh, if we do this, we're going to get this kind of blowback. I mean, I'm just speculating here, but we all talk to the same people and that's my sense in some instances. Yeah, I think you're right. If for no other reason than common decency for people who are trying to make a living in this industry. Yeah. This industry has provided so well for some people. You know, I remember I interviewed Josh Abrahami from Jack Nadell. He's a fairly young guy. You know, he's their top salesperson. And he started at Jack Nadell. I think he was an intern right out of college. And, you know, he tells me that he was eating ramen noodles at the time. And, you know, now, you know, he makes a spectacular living, as do many other people that we know in the industry because of promotional products. You know what I mean? So this industry has done right by a lot of people and gotten a lot of things right. We may be looking at some things right now under a critical lens, but this industry has provided for and been a great success for some people, many people. A hundred percent agree with that. In fact, I feel like the lucky one who's still here. I feel Mm -hmm. very grateful for the relationships that I've built over the years. And the fact of the matter is, that the two of you would continue to speak to me? I mean, come on. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 We're coming on a new year, Jay. You yeah, there's yourself. still time? Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I would just like to say that I don't see enough of either of you guys, and I hope that changes in the new year. Well, hey, I agree. Oh, thank I you. agree 100%. And I don't know if you have time for one more, but I do want to talk about, and I think it segues from what you just said, Robert, so well, so well, is trade shows. This idea that we need to get together physically more often. We need to be in the same room together. There needs to be a proximity. We need to unwind, have fun, work hard, plan, and all of that in continuing education and learning more about tariffs and learning more about private equity and unrealistic shipment and expectations and Amazon and blah, 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 blah. All of that happens often at a trade show. What do you guys think about them? Are they going to ever evolve? Are we going to keep doing the same thing? Let me ask you, when you say evolve, what does that look like? I don't know. Are we going to continue to show up in the first week in January to go to ASI Orlando show and walk up and down aisles where there are 4,000 plastic things? And that's a component of the trade show, but that's not the only, clearly not the only purpose of a trade show, but it is the main draw is you exhibit, exhibiting new things, new ideas, sharing new technology, and 
hopefully there's a draw of people who sell those things as a service who want to know more, right? So by evolve, I mean physically and I mean in its setting, in, its, in the mm-hmm. venue. Is there a better way to do it? You know, I know a lot of suppliers are balking at the cost of trade shows and setting up big booths and that sort of thing. Some have opted to pair that back or dial that back a little bit. Others have filled the space and that sort of thing. I think there'll always be a need for people to get together and what happens that's a value at a trade show. And certainly one of them is looking at new products. And the product either comes to you or you got to go to the product. You can see it on your screen, but that doesn't give you the full flavor like seeing it in person. It either has to come to us or we have to go to it. And I think somewhere in there, there will be some changes. It reminds me of, you know, about 20 years ago, I remember an ad, I think it was from United, and it was this CEO in a boardroom or something talking to all all his folks. And he was given a plane ticket to everybody and just saying, hey, you know, go see your clients, go visit them. Here's a ticket to Seattle, go visit. And it was in the time of the internet and electronic meetings online. And basically everybody thought that the idea of going to see somebody would be replaced by a computer screen or what have you when bandwidth was started to grow and you could do that. And 20 years ago, these folks were scared that nobody would be flying out to go see clients. And 20 years later, you know, we're all flying out to go see clients and we're all flying out to go see trade shows and that sort of thing. So it may morph and it will morph and the financials of it will obviously change and that sort of thing. But I think we'll always go to see people who matter and products that matter. That's just my opinion. It's a good one. I completely agree. Jay, much like you, I'm not a distributor, but you know, I certainly have a number of friends who are. And Robert, from your standpoint, I can only imagine the difference in you know being at a show and there's something to be said for the tactile nature of being able to hold a product and seeing a new product and talking to somebody about applications for that new product. There's a world of difference between that and seeing something come through your email as far as an image on a screen. I think it's completely different than to hold something in your hand and look at it. And I also think that I can't even underscore the value of sitting and talking to someone face-to-face. I mean, I have, and I know you guys have as well, I've had opinions that I've had of people change because I've sat with them in person. I've met people and learned the most interesting things about them that I would have never learned over email in person. So for the pure nature of the one-on-one effect, and again, the tactile effect, I think that those things are not going to change. And thank God for that. I concur. That's the word of the day. (laughs) Well, listen, you guys have been so fun to talk to and listen to. I could do this for a lot longer, but I think we promised each other that we would wrap up in about an hour. And so is there anything else that we could chat about in closing where if we could focus on the purpose and focus on what did we learn or what did we gain besides just the old cliche line from the Grateful Dead, what a strange trip it's been. I don't know if it's been long. Some days it feels long, but I swear some days it feels like, what? It's 20 years? <laughs> yeah. 20 years clicked by? Jake, can I ask Michelle you know, the question that's making my heart sort of pitter and probably sure. her nervous heart is beating, anticipating what it might be? Yes, yes, yes. Big <laughs> anxiety. Bring on, bring on the friction. Listen to that laugh. That tension is so good. <laughs> I'm just not sure. The floor is yours, Mr. Fida. She wants to go on record with this one. Give it a shot. All All right. 
Favorite Stones album and favorite Stones song? Such a good question. You know, as I sit here, by the way, looking at four paintings of Stones albums given to me many years ago, hanging in my office from you and Mr. Rosen. Yes, yes. Yes, uh, which our, I love. Our favorite artist, Steve Keen, who we love very much. Well, I get so many compliments on them. My favorite album, I think I'm going to go with Sticky Fingers. Okay. Yeah. And favorite song is Tumbling Dice. Ooh. Sixes and sevens and nines. You could be my partner in crime. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And, and last one, favorite post Tattoo You album. Oh, boy. Favorite post Tattoo Oh, I don't, I don't know if I have one. <laughs> what are you trying to yeah. do here, Robert? What are you trying That's to do? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. That, you know, I guess I'm a, an old school purist in that way, but I don't know if any of the post tattoo you resonate with me like the older ones do. Yeah. Oh, no, no doubt. You? Yeah. I'm of the exact same opinion. People really, I think a lot of people disliked Undercover. I thought it was not so bad. By the way, you did not answer a question in the beginning, and it's mainly because I think Jay and I cut you off. When does your reign as president uh, of Promo Kitchen end, oh, and who's the correct. incoming president? You. Yes. You're so welcome. I think the plan was to do a three-year stint, and it ended up being a four-year stint. And it ends in January in Las Vegas. And we had a fantastic vote a month or so ago. And there was an incredible amount of enthusiasm about it. The fantastic Joe Gottlieb from Axis Promos. Oh, that's wonderful. Leadership and Kate Plummer from Clearmount, which is a, a fantastic awards company in Canada. They are going to be chair and vice chair. This is the first time we've done split it that way. And I think it's going to be fantastic for the future of the organization. But those two have so much enthusiasm, so much energy. They're they, wonderful. They're both fantastic people. I've told several folks, you know, organizations like Promo Kitchen, you know, especially nonprofits like that, or really any organization, you need new DNA injected for sure. every few years, especially for a nonprofit. And, you know, Mark Graham, who preceded me had a, a very different personality than I have. And for my time, you know, some of the things that I got done, some of them weren't the sexiest of things, but they were things that needed to be done to create the base and the foundation from which the next leaders will really spring forward in Promo Kitchen. And Joe and Kate are, are primed and ready to take that mantle and take wherever it can go, which are very high heights. I'm really excited for those guys. They are the right people at the right time for PK, and I know they're going to do an amazing job. Well, they're wonderful, and congratulations to you, Robert, on a fantastic tenure. Really, you've done an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate that. Is the truth. Michelle Bell has spoken, and that is the truth. <laughs> we are so grateful for your time. We are so glad that you broke from tradition. Thank you, Jay. You did a great job, Mr. Boussel. Good for you. Well, he's good. He's good. You got a talent, my friend. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. 
we would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.